You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on January 29th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. I think we had a few questions left over, but I'm hoping that we can source some new ones here. Um, the questions here about mathematical objects and artifacts here. I don't know what all these artifacts are. These are artifacts from my, I've collected artifacts of all kinds. So maybe maybe another time we'll we'll do a, a tour of artifacts. I don't think I'm set up to do that right now today. I seem to have, um, uh, well, let's see. I mean, I have things like, what's this guy? How about this? There's an artifact. Okay, why is this artifact interesting? This is a, um, a mollusk shell, as you can see. And um, one of the things, the reason I have this is because I've made quite a study of the, of the patterns that exist on mollusk shells. Um, and uh, the way a mollusk grows, you know, when, when, the, when the critter is uh, alive, there's a great big creature, a uh, soft creature inside here. And uh, what's happening is at, uh, there's, it has sort of a lip on, the, on top of the shell and that lip is, is excreting material that forms the shell. It's kind of like, like we, um, uh, like our uh, hair cells gradually produce um, uh, uh, hair that, that's, um, that, that then exists as a sort of uh, a separate thing that doesn't have to be alive itself. And the, the, shell, the shell itself is not alive, it's only the creature inside it that's alive. So these shells, um, they, they gradually, they, they produce some, they, they grow by, by just growing out from this lip. And what happens is they eventually grow in a spiral. And I might even have, um, let's see if I have at hand here, I might have a sample of, let me see if I can reach back and find a sample of something. Let's see, oh, look at that, I really do. Yeah, there we go, I happen to have a sample. That's a, a shell that's been sliced in half. This is a Nautilus shell. And what you see happening is it forms a, um, uh, you, you can kind of see how it grows because it's forming these compartments. I think it forms one of those compartments essentially every lunar month. Um, these, these creatures, are, they have a very sedate lifestyle. Um, but uh, essentially, but the, the main thing one's seeing is when, when, the, when the creature is young, it's very small and it's just started at the center here. And gradually as it grows, as the creature inside grows, it, um, is, uh, it's getting bigger and bigger and it's secreting bigger and bigger pieces of shell. Um, and that's how the shell forms. And this creature, it's kind of like different, different kinds of organisms have different schemes for growing. So mollusks are growing this hard shell and they grow in a spiral like this. Plants, for example, which have uh, um, uh, um, they have the uh, sort of cellulose cell walls that are hard, plants, uh, grow by the, they'll, they'll grow a trunk and then they'll grow branches and they'll grow branches to the branches and so on. That's a sort of basic idea for growing. Um, animals have sort of a, a different idea. Well, 
the the sort of lower animals would have exoskeletons. They'll they'll grow on the they'll they'll grow inside. Then the skeleton they'll get too big for the skeleton. They'll shed that skeleton. They'll form another skeleton and so on. We have skeleton inside, and as we grow, uh, sort of the, the the tissue parts of us are soft. The bones grow. They typically grow from growth plates at the ends of the bones, and we kind of uh, we kind of grow. Grow that way. So these different different kinds of organisms have different schemes for growing. Mollusks have a scheme for growing that is is this kind of spiral scheme for growing. And um, turns out different mollusks, different species of mollusks, um, basically just have different rates at which the spiral grows out versus the spiral getting bigger. The rates at which the 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 um, uh, angles at which the kind of the the mouth of the shell um, is oriented relative to the direction of growth and so on. And it just turns out it's about three different parameters, three different um, uh, sort of things you can change about the way the growth works. And all the different mollusk shells that you see pretty much come out, the ones that are very flat and form bivalves, for example, the ones that are very pointy and so on. All those different uh, types of mollusks seem to be pretty much using one idea and they've just changed a bit the rate at which this thing grows versus that thing, this, this aspect of growth versus that aspect of growth. But um, on the surface of these shells, uh, there is a, um, a, a layer that they're pigment patterns. Nobody really knows exactly what those pigment patterns are for. You know, it's a very common thing in biology. People say, you know, they see some feature of some organism and they say, that must be for such and such. And they, they say, the organism uh, evolved to have a beak that was that shape so it could uh, peck out these things inside tree trunks or something like this. And sometimes that's a correct explanation and you can kind of see how you can tell the sort of backwards story from what you observe the organism doing to saying, yes, that was a thing that it evolved to do well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sometimes it's a little bit more questionable that you can explain things that way. And I think what's really true is that that what happens in the actual forms of organisms is sort of a mixture of things that can be explained in that kind of backward way. Of, it is that way because the environment makes it more successful if it has that feature versus it's, uh, it is that way because that's the convenient way for the organism to grow. That's the way that um, uh, you, can, you can sort of have have like for a mollusk shell, you know, the, the, they'll tend to have these spiral patterns just because that's a scheme for growth and everything is going to be using that spiral pattern idea. And you might have variants on it, but everything's going to use that same idea. In terms of the, sh the patterns on shells, it's much less clear what some of those are for, um, and whether they're for a purpose that can be identified or whether they are just sort of side effects of the growth processes of the organism. Um, the, uh, you know, sometimes you might think, oh, it's got this weird complicated pattern, just like zebras have a complicated, you know, pattern of stripes or something on them, or a butterfly wing has a pattern on it. Um, you know, why, maybe these mollusks are doing something similar, not clear why having these elaborate sort of triangle patterns and so on, uh, what feature that would, uh, what, what advantage that would give the organism. And, and sometimes some of the theories that people have had about why those patterns might exist are pretty wacky theories, in my opinion. Uh, one of the most bizarre that I, I ever heard about was the theory that the pattern uh, is kind of that the mollusk sort of during the day, it's out and about and it's, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's extended beyond the lip of the shell and uh, it goes and it's sort of adding more shell and so on. And it's also 
putting out this pattern, but it's also in the sense reading the pattern that was already there through some kind of neural net that's in the in the in the edge of the of the organism that's hanging out of the shell. And then at night it would retract. And then the next day it would come out again and it would kind of have a memory of what the uh, kind of reading that sort of the braille or something on the outside of the shell that is the pattern and trying to use that to line itself up again. I think it's a very wacky theory. It's, it's very, you know, that that's a, seems to me a very implausible theory. The other thing that, that's the case is that some of these mollusks have patterns that really aren't visible until the organism has died and um, it's uh, and the and the soft tissue has been uh, sort of uh, eroded away by the ocean and so on. And in a sense, the only selection effect is for shell collectors, so to speak, which means it's never going to have an effect for the organism because the way natural selection works is you get more of something because in a population of organisms because the organisms that have that feature, like let, let's say let's say it's a really good thing to be colored green um, uh, because it gives you better camouflage, your predators don't, don't uh, see you or whatever else. And let's say that, that uh, at first birds of a certain kind are randomly colored. Well, the ones that are red, their predators will say, oh my gosh, there's a red bird, go and eat it. Um, so that bird is then gone and it's not gonna have uh, you know, bird children, so to speak. On the other hand, the green bird is, uh, uh, might be, well, it's camouflage, as predators don't notice it. So it happily grows up and it has lots of children and it will tend to pass that trait of being green to its children. And so after a few generations, it will tend to be the case that uh, uh, all the birds of that species are green or many of the birds of that species are green because the red ones didn't have many children or didn't have any children at all and the green ones had lots of children and that gradually that's, that's the way that natural selection works. Um, but uh, so if, if there is a trait that doesn't affect the reproduction of the species, it's not clear how that has a consequence. So for example, in the case of, let's say it was the case that yes, the, the shell collectors we're very excited about picking up the shells on the beach doesn't have any effect on the, on the um, uh, on the organism directly. Perhaps it has in the modern world a slight effect because it's often said that animals that are more uh, interesting and elegant looking tend to be, uh, people put more effort into their conservation as a matter of sort of human uh, rules and, and habitat um, uh, uh, conservation and things like this. If, if, it's a, if it's a cool looking animal, people will really worry about it. If it's a koala that really looks cool and cuddly, um, people are going to worry more about uh, preserving its habitat than if it's this ugly looking black beetle that has oozing stuff coming out of it and so on. And that, 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 so that's a very weird kind of selection effect on these organisms. But, you know, for example, for one of the things that's, that's often mysterious is um, things like uh, lifespans of organisms and, and how that has an effect on uh, how natural selection operates on the lifespans of organisms. Because by the time you had your children, so to speak, you already contributed to the gene pool of the species. And so what happens after that is kind of not, uh, you know, is, is not going to be selected for by, by ordinary natural selection, with the exception of the fact that, in a sense, if you have very, very old members of the species all hanging around, not doing any good and just taking up resources, it's actually probably better for natural selection if they die off. It's better for the species if they die off. Now you can say, well, 
the you know the grand bird the grandparent bird and so on might be useful for teaching the new birds or might be useful for some other purpose and it's often hard to trace through all of those effects um but uh uh, you know, th those are some features of, of kind of the, the world of natural selection. Let's see. Um, I can talk some more about biology. I'd be happy to do that. Um, that was a question from Mitchell. Does the, does the pattern of shell formation have a mathematical scheme? So, so I've studied this quite a bit. And um, the, uh, the actual shapes of shells are well described by... Uh, field of mathematics, differential geometry, they're actually a fantastic example of differential geometry. It was all worked out by um, a chap, um, oh, what was his name, Reverend somebody or other, um, in the 1830s, did a really good job of working out uh, the kind of uh, calculus mathematics, calculus-based mathematics of shell shapes. And it's one of the better examples so you don't find it in any of the, uh, of the calculus books. It's a little bit complicated, but but it's a it's a really really good example of a place where calculus goes in, something in the in the world comes out, and it actually works. Um, uh, and one of the things that wasn't really known was people thought that the range of parameters that shells could use to sort of grow themselves was a very limited range. That was a result of a, a small mistake that was made by some paleontologists in the 1950s and 1960s, which I guess I managed to. To, uh, to, to fix um, in this big book of mine called New Kind of Science. I have a little section about mollusk growth. Um, and uh, when, you, when you fix that little mistake, you discover that the mollusks of the earth pretty much fill out the parameter space. That is, it's as if they just picked their parameters for how the shell grows at random. Um, but then it turns out that the different kinds of organisms, the different kinds of mollusks, um, you know, the ones that are very long and pointy, they make use of that long and pointiness to wedge themselves in rocks. The ones that are very flat do something different and so on. They make use of their different shapes. Um, and uh, no doubt, as they have lived in an environment where they need to wedge themselves in rocks, they'll end up picking more and more and more of the ones that are pointy and so on. But but from a mathematical point of view, that's actually pretty well understood, that the, the, the shapes of mollusk shells are pretty well understood. In terms of the pigmentation patterns, I also worked on that quite a bit. And these things called cellular automata, which are very minimal models of programs, um, very minimal kinds of programs where you just have a line of black and white cells and you just at each step pick the new color of a particular cell based on the neighboring colors of the cells on the previous step. It turns out those very simple cellular automaton rules do a fantastic job of explaining the, the, the kinds of patterns that you get on mollusk shells. One of the things that's surprising is some mollusk shells have very simple patterns, uh, just stripes or spots and things, and others have these very complicated, they're often called divaricate patterns that are these elaborate kind of random looking collections of triangles. One of the things that comes out of that sort of simple computational model is exactly those classes of, of, uh, of behavior. It's kind of like, who would have expected this complicated divaricate pattern? If you see stripes and spots, you wouldn't expect that the other, the other thing that you show, see in mollusks is this very elaborate thing with a bunch of weird sort of random triangle, uh, triangles dotted around. And that's an interesting case of where kind of the, the constraints on the growth of an organism have an effect on on what kinds of things can be produced by the organism. And it, it's something where, you know, in biology, one of the things one can think of is, oh, everything that happens in biology is just the result of natural selection with a particular environment, what's the best way to do this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think that's really true. I think there's a big effect in many cases from what's easy for the organism to grow, so to speak. 
and it's kind of like my my version of this is is the who expected the stegosaurus question so stegosaurus is i i was you know one of the problems with dinosaurs is you learn about dinosaurs many people learn about dinosaurs when they're kids and um the world of paleontology sort of progressively moves on and all the dinosaurs you thought you learned about as a kid they've all changed their names because people realized they weren't quite correctly classified and the you know it's now so i don't even know where the stegosauruses are still talked about but they're the they're the dinosaurs that existed they're fairly early dinosaurs as i recall they have a a big long um uh they, they kind of look uh they, they have they have lots of spines on their back nobody no, lots of plates weird shaped plates on their back nobody completely knows what those plates are for not clear they were for armor it's not clear they were one theory is that they were for cooling of the stegosaurus and it would it would stand in the wind and the wind would blow over these plates and it would sort of have uh, uh blood going up into these plates and that the, 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 the sort of it would be for cooling the stegosaurus i'm not sure if that's a convincing uh, picture. There are there are a lot of weird theories about about um, how uh, dinosaurs, um, um, why they, you know, why this why question. But there's also the question of maybe they exist in that form just because whatever growth process they have naturally produces that as one of the possible outcomes. And if it's not terrible for the life of the Stegosaurus, it's going to keep that growth form. Um, and you, you can see a lot of those things, even in humans, there are things that are like, we don't really, it doesn't really seem purposeful that we have, you know, an appendix in our gut and things like this. But yet it's kept because, well, that's what evolution did. It's not absolutely disastrous, um, you know, it, and, and so it, it doesn't, it doesn't get, um, it doesn't get modified. Um, but yes, there's a, there's a pretty good theory for, for, for growth processes in general, uh, mollusks pretty well under control. Um, I would say uh, the growth of, of, of plants that are sort of tree-like, also that's one's pretty well understood. One that I've been interested in for ages and ages is the growth of leaves. Uh, that's not very well understood. There's a huge diversity of different shapes of leaves and nobody really knows quite why they exist that way. Why are there you know, maple leaves and oak leaves and so on? What are the particular shapes? What is the, what is the purpose of the particular shapes? Yeah, pretty much the only thing that's that's known is that if you go to to tropical places rainforests things like that tropical rainforests you'll find a bunch of plants that have these little little um sort of pointy tips on their leaves and those i think are usually called drip tips and you know there's a lot of rain comes down and it sort of all collects and it drips off that that little tip at the end of the leaf and that's that's one of the cases where it's sort of known what the point of some some shape of a leaf is in other cases not really known uh, I made some models ages ago that kind of explain some of the diversity of leaf leaf shapes, um, and uh, but we don't really know uh, what what is picking these different leaf shapes or whether it's kind of random, um, and um, uh, it's kind of interesting because the the you know the structure of leaves has a very long history. I mean, people talk about it, and you know Theophrastus talked about it in 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 ancient Greek times, and you know all these different shapes of leaves, you know, there are the lanceolate, what is it called? Lance-shaped leaves. There are the dentate leaves that have sort of teeth-like patterns around them. There are the, there are all these different, uh, typically Latin names for all these different shape forms of leaves. Um, and, and this is something that these shape forms have been classified for a long time, but nobody knows why, why leaves actually work that way. It's, a, it's an interesting problem of, of growth. Uh, there's, you can look at sort of um, growths of, of animals. Um, the, uh, um, 
um, the thing that, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I always find it interesting to kind of figure out how did the animal grow? You know, you see a shape, how did it grow? What One that had me confused for a long time is sea urchins um, because they, they are this sort of closed area that seems to be quite hard. I think what actually happens there, it's actually similar to what happens in, in human skulls, is there are growth plates. There are regions of the sea urchin that are very hard, but they have sort of fuzzy borders between them and the, and the individual plates grow, but they still can be attached to other plates. The same thing happens in human skulls, which are growing in several different parts. Um, and uh, it's only, I think the, um, finally things sort of fuse when people get to their thirties or forties in, in age, and then, then the plates couldn't grow at that point. But they probably stopped growing long before then, but that's when the, the sort of the, 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 the what are they called? The, the, um, uh, the kind of suture lines in the skull finally close up. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, it's, it's always an interesting exercise to understand things about how animals grow. I, I, I um, um, uh, you know, if you, if you go, I have to say, I, I used to say years ago before I had studied uh, growth of organisms, I used to say, you know, I'd go to a zoo and I, I didn't really know what to look for. And I would be just kind of looking at the expressions on the animals and seeing if they reminded me of people I knew and things like silly things like that. And I realized there's actually a lot of interesting stuff. You walk around a zoo and you look at these animals and, and you can kind of think about how did this thing grow? And so for example, let's, let's say a good, good exercise is um, a leopard, for example. So a leopard has spots. And um, if you look at the spots on a leopard, you'll find the spots are bigger and further apart on the main body of the leopard, but they're much closer together on the head of the leopard. And the question is, why is that? Well, the answer is the original spot pattern got laid down when the leopard was a very small leopard fetus, um, when it was just, just growing. And it turns out that there's a process in biology that uh, is pretty good at laying down sort of patterns with a, with a separation where the separation of the pattern is about 0.1 millimeters. So very, very small separation between the different parts of the pattern. And, and that's a, it's a process that, that it basically, it's a diffusion of chemicals, it's a reaction diffusion process that um, uh, where the, the chemicals are kind of diffusing and reacting with each other and they will produce this kind of uh, consistent sort of wave pattern of where, um, uh, of, of, of uh, uh, for example, where there'll be pigment and where there won't be pigment. Um, and so at when, the, when, the, um, when the leopard was, you know, uh, very small, that process took place and there was sort of regularly spaced uh, thing which would become a pattern of spots where the distance between the spots was 0.1 millimeters. Well, then the leopard grows and it becomes a full-size leopard and so on. Um, but uh, uh, what you realize is that since the time when it was that little tiny fetal leopard, the, the head grew less than the body grew. And that's why the, the spots are closer together on the head for the Part on the body because when they were when it was a tiny little micro leopard so to speak they were equal distance apart on the head and on the body but the body grew more when the leopard was you know uh, was was growing up so to speak and so that's a you know it's just an example of where you can kind of see the um, uh, the, the the how did it grow question and it kind of tells you something another another thing that's pretty common is animals that are spotted on their bodies are striped on their tails and those are basically spots that sort of joined up around the tail so to speak. And you see these kind of regular arrangements of, of like on the tail, you know, you'd see a, a regular, you know, black, white, black, white, 
arrangement and so on. And that, you can understand that on the basis of this kind of reaction diffusion process that can happen. I mean, the, the, um, uh, the, the, the substance most often used in that is, is probably retinoic acid, vitamin A. Um, that's a, uh, and that's one of the things that that's useful for if you're a, a fetal mammal, so to speak, um, you need some vitamin A, and that's one of the things that gets used for is is to help um, is to uh, provide this so-called morphogen that's used to to produce that um, uh, that pattern. I mean, a thing that that's interesting in the biology of this is there is a sort of continuous diffusion of the substance, and it kind of it just sort of it's a smooth you know it's it's bigger bigger concentration here, smaller concentration there, and it's a smooth gradual change, but then the whole operation of a sort of biological system, um, particularly associated with these things called Hox genes, they used to be called homeobox genes, they got shortened to Hox genes, um, have the feature that they uh, involve a kind of a um, uh, biological processes that have a very on-off character. So even though the, the concentration is gradually changing over, over the region. You know, as you go down the tail or something, there's gradually less and less and less of this particular substance. But then it will turn out as a result of these Hox gene things that there will be a discrete change. It's like you either get pigment or you don't get pigment. If the concentration is more than, you know, 0.3 or something, you get pigment, yep, it's on. If it's less than 0.3, boom, zero, you don't get pigment. So it's kind of like what was a, an analog Kind of continuous system is being chopped up into a digital system um, by by that by that process. See the same kind of thing actually in plants. So one of the notable features of plants is their so-called phyllotaxis pattern. So uh, if you look at a okay, if you're in a place where there are palm trees, this is particularly easy to see. If you look at a, look at a palm tree, so palm trees are the different the different schemes plants use to grow. I keep on talking about the growth of things. The two principal forms of, of plant growth, the monocotyledons and the dicotyledons, which pretty much have to do with whether they have um, uh, sort of, I think that, that, that those names come from whether they have one sprout when they come out of the seed or two. But a palm tree has the feature that it grows, there's only one place on the palm tree that it's growing out leaves. So you go up the trunk and at the top of the trunk, that's where the leaves come out and there are new leaves made and there's new pieces of trunk made. Other kinds of plants, other kinds of trees, for example, they'll make branches and leaves and so on all the way up the trunk, not just at the top. But if you look at a palm tree and uh, you look at the, um, uh, there's, there's, there's just this one place where there's growth. That's the thing which you can get um, very sort of uh, um, high nutrient food, heart of palm is the, is the uh, what I guess is called in biology, the apical meristem, the actual piece of tissue that is at the top of the, of, the, of the palm tree, that is the place where growth occurs and where you know, leaves, new leaves are sprouting out and things like this. Okay, so one of the issues with the palm tree, you've got this trunk of the palm tree and it's gonna put one leaf out. Then it's gonna put another leaf out. It's gonna put another leaf out. Question is, what angle do those leaves come out at? So for example, one thing you might imagine is leaves go up, you, know, the, the, you get the, 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 the plant, um, Leaf comes out on one side, next leaf might come out on the exact opposite side. Or, but now, if you imagine the next leaf, then if, if, it's, if, if the rule is leaves come out on exactly the opposite side, alternate leaves come out on exactly opposite sides, you'll get a situation where kind of every other leaf is piled up in the same direction. 
And that's, that's a little weird. You don't see a lot of plants that way, that work that way. Instead, what you see is the leaves all seem to come out at different directions. And it turns out that, that um, the, there's, a, there's a general rule for plants that leaves, successive leaves usually come out about 137 degrees apart. So that means as you go up the, the, the trunk, you got a leaf comes out, the next leaf, if it was pointed in the exact opposite direction, it would be 180 degrees from the previous leaf, but actually it's about 137 degrees away from the previous leaf. Then you go to the next one, it's 137 degrees away from that previous leaf and so on. And it turns out that 137, um, which is um, uh, for mathy people, it's the golden ratio in radians. Um, it's uh, uh, um, that angle actually has the interesting property that it is actually optimized for sort of the leaves never pile up. The, the, if you look on any particular, in any particular sort of segment, you'll, the leaves are sort of evenly spaced around the plant as, they, as you go up. Um, so that's one question is how does the plant achieve that? Well, the answer is it's achieved through this whole sort of diffusion process. Um, and what, what's happening is every time a leaf comes, a shoot comes out, um, I don't know whether it's a positive or negative thing, but let's say it's it's some, uh, yeah, actually, probably the best way to think about it. Every time, the leaf, so there's some particular plant hormone, they're called auxins for plants, that is a growth hormone, just like we have human growth hormone, plants have, have plant growth hormone uh, called auxin, which is a substance that diffuses through the plant that sort of signals the, the parts of the plant that can grow to, to actually grow. So you have this, uh, this substance that's set telling the plant saying, you know, okay, you can, you can grow. And then what happens is if you look kind of a, around a ring at the top of the plant, let's say the palm tree, you'll, you'll see that there's, a, you know, let's say there's, a, there's an increasing concentration of this, this hormone, but it, at the beginning, it's evenly spread around, the, um, uh, around this ring. Okay, so then a leaf comes out and that uses up a certain amount of that substance. So it depletes the amount of substance that's on that, that and that angle uh, on this ring, okay? So then, then the next thing that comes out should be at the place where there is the most of this stuff still left. So that would be at the beginning, that would just be on the opposite side. But if you keep doing this, it's sort of a mathematical fact that if there's a certain, if, if at a particular angle, you've depleted the, 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 the sort of the growth, growth hormone, then and you, and you keep doing that at all different angles, turns out it doesn't take very long before the, the average angle at which you have maximum growth hormone relative to where it was on the step before is this 137 degrees. And that's kind of the me mechanics, I think, of how plants manage to, to do this, make this pattern of leaves coming out always at successively 137 degrees away. Okay, why is this relevant to palm trees? So if you have a palm tree readily available, I don't, um, you can look at the trunk of the palm tree and you will see the leaf scars on the palm, on the, on the trunk of where leaves had previously come out. And if you measure the angle, so it's, it's kind of goes around in a spiral around the, around the, 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 um, uh, the trunk of the, of the palm. And you'll find that that the angle of that spiral, um, the, uh, it's a little bit tricky to do the, all the sort of angle chasing, but you'll find that the, the successive, if you look at two, things which are sort of successively one above each other um, in height on the spiral, you should find that they're 137 degrees apart in the, in the going around the trunk direction, so to speak. So actually this phylotaxis scheme that plants use 
this sometimes called Fibonacci phylotaxis, because this golden ratio um, uh, number that, that turns into this 137 degrees is also the ratio of between successive Fibonacci numbers. So the Fibonacci series is the, the you take the nth Fibonacci number is the n minus first plus the n minus second. So it goes 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21. Oh, I'd have to work out my next Fibonacci number. But it goes 1, 1, 1 plus 1 is 2. One, uh, then you go 2 plus 1 is 3. 3 plus 2 is 5. Um, uh, 5 plus 3 is 8, and so on. Um, and the ratio of successive things, so that's 8 over 5, 13 over 8. 21 over 13 and so on, that ratio of terms in the Fibonacci series, um, as, you, as you go on with that series, that ratio uh, becomes approximately 1.618, um, which is the golden ratio, otherwise known as square root of five plus one over two. And, and that, that ratio is also the thing that governs this angle that shows up in, in plant growth. Okay, where else does it show up? All over the place. Plants are very unoriginal. They use this everywhere. So uh, not only palm trees, but also if you look at a pine cone, the, the, if you look, for example, at the bottom of a pine cone, you'll see that same angle showing up as the way that different parts of the pine cone form. You look at a strawberry, you'll find the same thing for the little, little um, seed dots on the strawberry. Look at a raspberry, same story. Look at um, uh, different kinds of petals on a, on, on a, on a flower, same story. Look at um, uh, uh, many kinds of plants which have a sort of stalk and then they produce leaves out from the stalk, same story. Occasionally a plant will have a different scheme. Occasionally it will do alternate sides, but that's pretty rare. Um, the, uh, so, so this kind of, this is, a, this is a place where sort of, uh, it's actually a very good example of sort of mathematics. People get quite confused actually about this, um, about the exact way that the Fibonacci series relates to what's going on, because it's not really the Fibonacci series. It's, 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 a, it's a thing that has some of the same origins as the Fibonacci series, but it's not really directly the Fibonacci series. It comes about because of this, this process of, of uh, when there is this, when there's growth, it produces, it sort of depletes things at one angle. And then as a result of sort of, you can solve the equations if you want to, and um, you can kind of see that the, the optimal case will be this, this, um, this golden ratio case, but it doesn't really quite have the same precise origin as that adding up of numbers thing that you get in the Fibonacci case. And it's also very confusing because um, when you look at the palm tree case, where you have this 137 degree angle, you can plainly see from the successive leaves coming out and then you compare that to what happens on a raspberry, for example, it's a little bit tricky to do the, the sort of geometric transformation between this straight stalk versus this thing where it's putting out little pieces of the, of the raspberry and so on. It, it's, it's surprisingly tricky actually to do that. There's a, there's a nice picture of it in my new kind of science book actually, where I tried to unscramble how you, how you get those transformations to work. But um, it's a very, uh, oh, by the way, the, the, other, the other thing, if you look in the center of a daisy, for example, the, the little um, uh, stamens, is that what they're called? The, the, um, the little yellow things, oh gosh, um, uh, that, that, um, uh, that are where the, you know, the bees go to get um, uh, pollen and so on. The, the, um, the, those are arranged also in this, in a phylotaxis spiral, and they also have this kind of golden ratio uh, angle that shows up. Oh boy, 
David Brown is suggesting a cool looking animal for a kind of a kind of crab. Yeah, it does look cool. Um, um, oh, a lot of questions here. All right, I'm going to take a completely different. Um, um, let's see. Um, okay, there's a question from Waft Lord. Do you think life forms have a baseline program that is informed and coded by the environment and experiences? Is that baseline program evolving over generations or is it hardwired? Okay, it's an interesting question. We've been talking about biology here. Um, you know, many organisms, uh, they don't really, there's a question of, of can an organism learn at all? And then can it pass its learning on to future generations? So there are some things in particularly lower organisms and some things in us that are just completely hardwired. Um, there, there are even things that involve nerve cells. There are reflex arcs in our spinal cord. There are, there are things in, in organisms where they just, it's a, it's a reflex. You, you know, you touch something hot, you pull away. I don't think that's, that's a thing that's not learnt in successive generations. It's a kind of built-in feature of the way that our, uh, our nerve, nervous system is, is constructed. But yet there are other things where we can learn, you know, like, if you're a bird or something, you know, you apparently have to, well, some things sort of come naturally, but some things you have to kind of learn about how to fly and so on. Um, and there, there are pieces that sort of come naturally and there are pieces that you have to learn in successive generations. What good does it do evolution to have things where you have to learn on successive generations? Well, the main thing is, if you know that, um, if, if you are wired to eat this particular kind of thing, and you're just wired that way and there's nothing else you can eat. Well, then maybe that food supply dries up for some reason. Well, then you as a, as a, as a species are, you know, you're kind of toast because you, you, you know, you're wired to eat that particular thing and sorry, that particular thing isn't available. So you're just going to die out. But if on the other hand, you learn what you're supposed to eat and every successive generation learns what it's supposed to eat, then even if that particular piece of food supply disappears, you'll learn something else that you can eat. And, and so this idea that it's, it's more flexible, it's, 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 if, if everything is kind of burnt in, it's very fragile. If you've got it wrong, then you're completely toast. If you, um, uh, but if you can learn in every successive generation, then things could be a little different and you can learn to deal with them. And so that's sort of a, an evolutionary uh, feature of, of learning. Now, you know, there's, a, there's a big question, which is to what extent the traits of organisms are, uh, are determined genetically and to what extent they're things where in the life of the organism, something happens and then it passes that to its, to its, to its children. So there used to be back in, in uh, uh, a century ago or more, there used to be sort of the Darwinian theory of evolution, which kind of said, it's all natural selection and, it, and, and the traits that survive, are uh, the traits are just determined by your, your given, you know, the roll of the dice gives you certain genetics that will determine and the ones that are successful in the sense that they have more children will be the ones that win out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the course of your life, so to speak, and you know, you won't, if, if, you, uh, if you're a bird and you, uh, spend your time doing flapping exercises and it makes your wings longer, uh, that's all well and good for you, but you're not going to pass that trait to your children. Um, the, uh, so 
But then there was a different theory uh, due to a person called Lamarck, um, Lamarckism, which was sort of a, a, a competitor to Darwinism. And it said that during the, um, uh, you know, what happens during the lifetime of an organism can be passed to its progeny. So if the organism had had, uh, you know, had done lots of flapping of its wings, the wings got longer, okay, then its progeny will have longer wings. That was a different theory. One of the things that was really bad actually that, that um, uh, uh, back in, in, um, in Soviet times, this is now more history than, than science, but, but um, uh, particularly through a chap called Lysenko, there was, a, there was a whole push to think about agriculture in the Soviet Union in terms of Lamarckianism, and it was turned out to be a wrong scientific theory, basically, mostly, not completely. And it was, and, and it caused a lot of trouble to kind of enmesh the kind of the politics of, of uh, this scientific theory versus the other scientific theory. And, uh, you know, they happened to pick the wrong one. And that led to a lot of incorrect uh, inferences about sort of the way that you should do development of crops and so on. But anyway, the, the, um, so the result partly as a result of that, um, uh, you know, the Lamarckian theory of evolution was really rejected. Like it's all wrong. Darwinism is the only thing, there's no story. What, what, what happens during the life of an organism is not relevant to its progeny, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, forget it, there's nothing passed down that way. Well, as is usually the case in biology, things are not quite as simple as that. And, and needless to say, there are things that are known where where there will be effects from what happens to one organism on successive ones. For example, one that's known is various kinds of vitamin deficiencies that, are, um, that will produce things that affect the, the progeny of one of, of uh, uh, you know, in, in during fetal development or something, it affects one generation and then it can actually be passed down to successive generations um, because of things that aren't to do with it. The genome, although I think there are some effects actually, which are known that have to do with the regulation of the genome and, and um, uh, let's see, how does this work? I think there are some things to do with the uh, uh, various kinds of metadata associated with the genome. But it's worth realizing that when organisms, when you go from one organism to its progeny, it isn't just the DNA. There's also, you know, an egg cell or something like that that is passed down, and that contains additional stuff. So, you know, even if we had the dinosaur DNA, for example, we would still need something, some carrier, there's some sort of thing like a dinosaur egg to to put that in to be able to uh, uh, to actually make a dinosaur. And that that additional sort of metadata that comes along with the DNA can carry other things which are much more Lamarckian in the way that they get inherited. Um, so it's one of these cases where sort of as a result of kind of partly the, the politics meets science of what was going on and so on, that, you know, a, a theory that, that actually wasn't, I mean, it was not the dominant theory, but it wasn't 100% wrong. It was only 98% wrong. And, um, you know, the 2% is still, is still interesting. Now, when it comes to learning, uh, much learning that gets done by organisms is learning that gets done in a particular generation and never passed to future generations. Um, and that seems to be true. Uh, and one of the key things that sort of can happen then is when it becomes the case that you can pass learning from one generation to the next. And that happens in some animals. It also happens dominantly in humans. And, and clearly the main innovation that humans had that allows that to happen is, is language. 
and the idea that we can uh, go and do uh, live streams like this and talk about things and maybe pass on some, some knowledge that I've accumulated in my life, uh, pass on to, to other people who will then pass it on to other people and so on, um, that that works is a feature that seems to be largely enabled by human language. And that's a very important feature. And that's, that's sort of a way in which our species is very different from others or seems to be very different from others. We don't know whether whales and things like that have a similar kind of ability to pass information in sort of symbolic language, um, not clear, um, but uh, uh, you know, it's something that's a very important feature for humans. Um, and it's something that, that um, uh, certainly affects the, the it's sort of a, a dominant effect in the evolution of, of um, uh, in, in what happens in, in sort of human evolution. Um, I mean, and people then uh, talk about the, the idea of, of sort of memes that are kind of the, 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 the thoughts analog of genes. That is, you know, if there's an idea that gets passed from me to the next generation, to the next generation and so on, that idea can have the same kind of uh, sort of natural selection phenomena go on with it. Um, that, that as, as um, for example, an idea where the idea is never tell anybody this idea is probably going to go extinct. Because after all, if people follow that idea, they never tell the idea to anybody. And so the idea isn't gonna be known to anybody else. And if it's an idea which is very popular and the idea sort of spawns more copies of itself, then it's going to be carried forward. And it's going to, as, as people say in the in sort of social media world, you know, go viral, so to speak, and, uh, and replicate a lot. I think that, that, that phraseology, I haven't heard that being as a result of the pandemic that we're still in. I haven't heard the, the uh, too many people attacking the, the, um, that phraseology, but maybe it will, will yet come. Yeah, okay, there's a comment from Mark here about epigenetics of if you, if you don't chew on hard food for hundreds of years, your jaws will get, uh, will get small and your teeth will be crooked and you'll have trouble breathing at night. It's interesting. I, I think that's a, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a um, uh, uh, in a sense, if you have the idea that you're only gonna eat this kind of food and that gets passed down as an idea, you can certainly have, you know, okay, fair enough. There's a, if you learn in, in, the, in, your, in your kind of, um, uh, in your generation, you learn something and that has, um, uh, you know, that, that has an effect that um, as a result of your learning, you do or don't survive based on some physical trait that you have. Um, then, then it's it's um, uh, then that's something that can again enmesh with this whole sort of standard process of natural selection. It's always interesting this process of thinking, thinking in terms of natural selection, so to speak, is always kind of interesting. And it's, it's interesting in in um, uh, in different fields. There are always these sort of thinking in terms of some particular um, sort of dominant way of thought. I mean, like for example, in economics, there's very different ways of thinking that are you know because the consumers do this and then that happens and then that happens. In medicine, there are definite ways of thinking. In physics, there are definite ways of thinking. Each of these fields has a sort of definite way of thinking that sometimes takes a while to learn and get, and get used to and sometimes they're a more natural fit for somebody than, than another. Um, okay, let's see, maybe another couple of things here. Okay, there's a question, another biology question. Uh, about butterflies and their four-stage life cycle, where only the last stage is capable of reproducing. I don't know. I, I strongly suspect 
that and a lot of these things like like it really does seem very wacky when you have a you know a whole caterpillar and then it makes a chrysalis and then it comes out as a butterfly it's like that's a really kludgy way to do things why do you have to do it that way well it's and maybe the answer is a large part of that kludginess has to do with the fact that as you go through evolution you typically only make a small change at each generation if you make a dramatic change, you say, I'm not going to be a butterfly. I'm going to be a, a, a thing that um, is, you know, has something completely different characteristic. The chances are you're not going to be able to correctly get to that totally different thing in one generation. You're just going to die out. So, so typically you only make small moves in evolution. And the fact that you're only making small moves at every successive generation means that if you've got one scheme, which was be a caterpillar or something, you don't get to say, oh, for Forget that. Scratch that idea completely. Let's just have it be a butterfly from the beginning. You don't get to do that. You only get to make these small moves because otherwise you don't. You know, you you kind of die off, die out in in the process of trying to make that larger move. And it, it's a it's a feature of biological evolution. I don't think we yet understand that well. Actually, I have some recent ideas about how this might work. Um, don't understand that well the real effect of sort of this incrementalism in in biological evolution and what its sort of overall meta effect is. I mean, it's always that interesting thing again it's like how do things grow sort of what's the planning for how do you get to a butterfly it kind of reminds one of what's the planning for how do you land a spacecraft on the moon you know it's not self-evident that you have two different pieces of the spacecraft and they kind of go into earth orbit and then they dock and then one piece goes off this way and another piece goes off that way and so on um each one of these things is kind of a scheme for achieving a result and the caterpillar to butterfly is some scheme for achieving the result that seems kind of kludgy to, to, to one on the face of it. But um, and no doubt when you kind of think natural selection wise, there'll be a whole story about how the caterpillar has certain access to food sources, and then this happens and that happens. And you'll be able to certainly tell a backstory about why it had to be that way. It's not clear that that is really the reason. It could be that it's just, well, there were caterpillars and you know, then there was an evolution of this, and it was all sort of small, small changes and so on. Um, oh, there's questions here about how do bean plants find their poles to climb up? Wait a minute, I thought you put a pole in the ground to, and you put the bean plant near the pole. But but there's the question of of how does it how does it uh, sort of uh, um, how does it know? I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I would think. Uh, so, so plants have, um, they have some ability. So, so some plants like, like insect eating plants, you know, they, they actually can move. Um, I think plants in general, well, when, when plants, for example, turn towards the sun, I think what happens is there are little fibers inside the plant. They're, they're really kind of like the plant analog of muscles that we have. And I think they have to do with the actual, the moving of a plant, like turning a sunflower head towards the sun. Now, I, you know, what is the control system inside the sunflower that does that? I don't completely know that. Um, the, uh, I mean, it is interesting that it is possible to have a plant, but it seems like a very static thing, be able to respond to its environment. I think people, people say, you know, it's like uh, you always kind of think, uh, somehow for some reason it's a very British thing to talk to your plants. It's, a, it's one thing to talk to your pets. It's quite another thing to talk to your plants, but, but some people do it. Um, and maybe it's more of a benefit to the person than to the plant, but, or, you know, playing music to your plants to get them to grow in a certain way. Is that even vaguely plausible or is that just totally nuts? Well, 
uh, you know, it does seem to be the case that plants can, uh, can they, they do have some ability to, to take sensory input as the sunflower turning itself to the sun indicates. Um, exactly how that sensory ability works is, is not, I think, well, well understood. I think it's also the case, you know, one thing that in, is in the kind of um, the alien intelligence type category, you know, maybe plants are sort of, you know, have a, have sort of a, a, a you know, a network of, of, uh, of, of um, uh, chemical processes or filaments or whatever else that is doing something a little bit like what brains do, but maybe it's doing it a, a thousand, 10,000 times slower. Would we know? Not clear. Um, you know, th these are these are interesting possibilities, and um, there's certainly you know people will make. Um, um, and when you look at like the the root system of a plant, you know, there's a question of of to what extent it can um, uh, um, uh, the, what what kind of information content can be distributed that way. You know, there's this in this Avatar movie, there's a whole planet covered with plants that communicate, I think, through their root system. Um, and that's the, you know, the, the plants are intelligent. Well, we can go into a long discussion about the meaning of intelligence and uh, the difficulty of really distinguishing between that which is intelligent and that which is merely computational. And I don't think plants, I don't think it's an obvious, obvious dividing line. But um, yeah, interesting, interesting um, uh, questions about sort of how plants think, so to speak. Um, there's a question here from Easton. How would you recommend developing a work ethic to get into science and technology um, for somebody who is, is uh, younger? And I'm being reminded that I'm running out of time here. But, uh, well, you know, the thing about, I, I, I would say that my comment about sort of work ethics and so on is do stuff you're interested in. If you're not interested, it's, you know, then yes, you can kind of force yourself to do it. But somehow it doesn't work that well, at least for most people. It's like kind of, you know, you're doing some class. You're really interested in this class. You're going to remember what happened in this class. If it's a class where it's like, well, I got to do this. And, you know, yeah, I got to do the homework. It's going to take me an hour. And I just sort of rush through it. And it's like, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm kind of sleepwalking through it. You won't remember it. And it's almost like, what was the point of taking it? It's kind of like, it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, to some extent, it's like, well, I vaguely, you know, then years later, it's like, well, yeah, I vaguely remember I saw some example of that back in this class, but I don't really remember it. And I wasn't really paying attention in this class. One of the things that drives me most, most crazy sometimes is, is, um, you know, I'll be talking to some younger person about some topic and they'll say, oh, yeah, I did a class about that, you know, last year. It's like, okay. And you start talking about the content and say, oh, I don't remember anything about that. That was last year I did that class. That's a really bad sign. I mean, I, I have to say that the things that I've learned, I, you know, I've mostly learned them when I'm interested in them, and I typically remember them. You know, I'm for better or worse, I have a pretty good memory, which possibly is because I've mostly learned things I'm interested in, or possibly it's just because I happen to intrinsically have a good memory. I don't really know. I suppose I should be able to detect that by by looking at my children who uh, also have rather good memories, but but um, I'm not sure that's, again, one of these complicated questions of is that some genetic trait of having good memory, or is that because they've also adopted the point of view of only learning things that they're interested in? So uh, it's it's hard to disentangle those kinds of things. But I think that that's a, an important thing is, is to find, figure out what you're interested in. Now, sometimes there are things where you don't know you're interested. You have to get over a little bit of a hump 
to know you're interested. You know, it, it's it's like, well, there's a class on this and, and well, maybe it sounds vaguely interesting. But I don't know. Or, or it's a required thing. It's like, oh, gosh, I don't think it'll be interesting. Well, if it turns out actually the whole thing or at least some part of it, you find, oh, this is really interesting. Then you're kind of on 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 track there. And I think that's some. So, you know, by the time you're sort of forcing yourself to do things, it's not a good sign. I think it's like then pick something where you really want to do it, where where the thing is pulling you into doing it, rather than something where you find you have to push yourself to 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 do it. And you know, having said that, I, I've worked in my life on a lot of very large projects, and um, you know, it isn't the case that every single day, every single moment, every single piece of what you're doing is like totally. I want to be doing this particular piece right now. I mean, I was working just yesterday on something I'm writing about, um, about multi-way Turing machines. We can have a long discussion about that. It sounds like a very technical topic, but actually has very interesting implications for theory of consciousness, which um, uh, you might think was not connected, but it turns out it's a really interesting way to help one understand how quantum mechanics and consciousness, a bunch of other things work. But anyway, at the that's all kind of fun, but when you're in the weeds of the multi-way Turing machines and trying to figure out why this particular result of this computer, particular computer experiment comes out this way and why it doesn't come out that way, those things, well, they're not the most exciting things, but it's kind of like the, the, the pull from this project of, I really want to understand how this works because it's going to help me understand how things like consciousness work. Um, that's enough of a pull that the fact there's this little bump that I have to get over of understanding this kind of uh, crazy thing with, with some causal invariance property of some Turing machine that, um, uh, that it's okay, I get over that bump because the pull is large enough uh, from for, for what, I'm, what I'm trying to get to. I think that, um, you know, it's also perhaps uh, uh, sometimes you do have to get into a certain rhythm of you know how you get started on a project. What happens if you had to? I mean, I think one of the things I've noticed with with young people is um, uh, one of the things that I think is almost a paradox of the modern world is I think high school students are busier than anybody else. At least in in sort of the 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 most upscale high school students are busier than sort of almost anybody else. And um, I'm not sure if that's a good thing. I personally don't think it's a particularly good thing. I think that that's how you end up sort of sleepwalking through a bunch of things. And I think it would be better if one was a little less busy and one was able to like, oh yeah, you know, I can think about that. Um, you know, I'm really interested in that. Let me go spend more time on that rather than you are programmed to spend this number of hours on this every week. And I think that um, the thing that, um, uh, that had, um, um, uh, the this question of if you if you do have your time sliced up and and for example for me because you know I have a day job of running a tech company and I do weird things like these kinds of live streams and so on and these are all scheduled in various ways and uh, you know I have a pretty scheduled life actually mostly and that means that I sort of have these blocks of time where I can do creative work and it has taken me quite a while actually, to get to the point where when I say, okay, I've got a two hour block to do this thing, great. Um, and then like within a minute, be able to actually be doing something productive rather than like, oh, what's going on here? Let me think about what's happening. Let me kind of uh, come to equilibrium before I can sort of pounce and start um, start doing things. It, that's something that has, I've sort of, uh, over the years, I've kind of learned better how to kind of switch and be, okay, now I'm doing this, let me get into action on doing that. 
and I'm not sure that I have a, I mean, I have for myself various schemes for doing that. I Like one thing, I mean, this is a thing about uh, just doing projects is that, well, one, one thing is always leave good notes for yourself. That is, I'm always making these these notebooks, Wolfram notebook um, things in, in sort of Wolfram language code and so on. And I'm always writing stuff in there. And I, I'm like, even though right now, I remember exactly what's going on. I know that within a week, well, I, I kind of measured this a bit. My, my, my sort of human memory time is about three days. I can remember pretty much all the details um, and that, that's okay. But if it's longer than that, if I didn't leave notes for myself, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not gonna remember what I was doing. And there's sort of a point where if you leave kind of a, a, a piece of sort of, uh, sometimes when I'm, when I'm doing things, you get into this kind of state where you really understand what's going on. You've got all these different pieces and you're able to knit them all together. If you can't finish while you're in that state, things all fall apart. When you come back later, it's like, oh, well, I remember I was in that state where I was figuring everything out and I got to come back to that. And it's very sort of, it's very uh, demotivating that you're thinking about those kinds of things that, that you have to say, I have to put all these pieces back together before I can start to work again. Anyway, a few, a few thoughts about um, uh, kind of um, uh, work ethics. I mean, I, I would say that, that um, another general principle of, of sort of work ethic type stuff is, um, uh, you know, the more you learn, the more you'll know, and the more you'll be able to learn more stuff. And, you know, what I've always noticed is the more things I know about different kinds of areas and all that kind of thing, it all kind of fits together in some sense. And it really helps you to learn, you know, if you say, well, I just want to learn this one particular area, you will be much less effective than if you've learned broadly across a bunch of areas, because it just is a bunch of sort of analogies that you can make, a bunch of ways of understanding things that sort of jump from one area to another, about a bunch of ways of thinking that you learn from one area that you can then apply in other areas and so on. I mean, I happen to be just in the midst of a really grand unification of a bunch of areas of, of science that I'm really quite excited about that um, if it all works out, will we'll deeply leverage the fact that I've learned about physics and mathematics and, and computation, a bit about things like biology and economics and so on. If this sort of granification works out, then I'll, I'll feel very pleased with myself that I actually know enough about these different areas to be able to see these common threads and so on. Um, but uh, uh, don't, I, can't, I can't report success on that yet. But, um, but in general, I would say that, you know, learning lots of different things is, is really worthwhile, even if you think, but, but locally, learn things you're interested in rather than just doing the sort of rote, well, I should learn this and this and this. And I mean, for myself, I've most of the time when I learn stuff, I have a particular goal, some particular project I'm doing, and then I'm going to backtrack and figure out if I'm trying to get to this goal, I need to learn this, I need to learn that, I need to learn that. And sometimes the actual process of learning things is, um, I mean, you know, every time I learn some, some, area that has its own sort of conceptual structure, it's like, oh my gosh, I don't understand anything about this area. But I kind of know a certain amount about how to learn things in general. I mean, I've, I've been learning some areas of, of pure mathematics recently that I've never understood before. I've been, um, um, oh, things to do with type theory and a bunch of other things where I've sort of had some vague understanding, but I've never really dug deep in these areas. And I now realize that I have to understand these areas and the first few iterations of trying to understand this, it's actually pretty hard work. And it's pretty much, I'm not understanding this. I don't understand, I don't get it. People are telling me a new thing. And it's like, oh, I don't understand that. Doesn't really fit in with anything I know. And, and then there's this very satisfying feeling at some point as you've 
chipped away at it enough. Finally, for me at least, it's like, it's really fun. You know, it's like it all happens at once. You, you, you get it. You kind of wrap your arms around the area. And then, then it starts to be the case that, you know, things people tell you, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I understand that it fits in here and here and here. Um, but it's sometimes in that process of getting to the point where you really understand it. It's a, you know, that's a, that's a hard uphill battle, so to speak, um, to, to get to that point. And I think that in the process of doing that, the, um, the best thing that helps me always is um, that at each point you say, well, what's a simple thing I can answer based on what I know? What's a really simple example of this? Rather than like, oh yeah, well, in, you know, this is a very complicated thing and that's where I'm trying to get to. It's like, what's a simple thing that I can actually work out where I can, even though I'm not getting my arms around the whole thing, where I can get this little piece and I can really understand that little piece. Because one of the things that helps, you know, I guess I'm a person who uh, likes to understand things pretty pretty thoroughly when I, when I think I understand them. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very bad. I, I know people who can kind of jump to new ideas without really understanding the previous ideas in the chain and, and not kind of just crash and burn at the end of it. Um, I'm not particularly good at that. I, I find it much better to solidly understand one thing, then build the next thing, then build the next thing. I suppose uh, the level of sort of analogies it could kind of do this jumping thing, but at the level of actually trying to trying to work things out. And you know, I'm I'm always, and there's another thing I would say about, you know, another thing to say about sort of getting work done. I always like to concretify the things I'm doing. I like to write a piece of Wolfram language code that does it, see the picture come out. Did I understand? Well, if, I, if the picture came out the way I thought the picture should come out, then yes, I understand something rather than just, I have a conceptual idea about what's going on is turn it into computational language and see that I really, really understand it. And that's, that's a super helpful thing for me. And it's a way of kind of structuring the, the sort of things I think about. I mean, I, I happen to be a person who's really very bad at just abstractly close my eyes and think about stuff. I mean, I kind of have to be interacting with a computer or something like that to, to sort of concretify the things I'm thinking about. I think other people work a little differently in that regard. But that's another thing that really helps in terms of, of like, did I do anything this hour? Well, yes, I did. I Look, I produced this whole notebook. I've done all these things. I've got all these pictures. I made something rather than just like, well, I sat and thought for an hour and I don't remember anything I thought about. So, so these things where you can sort of get some concrete progress, but as, as you're trying to climb the hill of some area that you don't understand, sort of picking off these things that are simple and where you can make it concrete and write a piece of computational language and do it and see that, yes, you know, according to type theory, this and this and this happens. Okay, let me do a simple example. Let me write a piece of computational language that just does that. By the way, you know, in my experience, doing those kinds of things, you, by being explicit like that, you can often you often end up with a much better understanding than sort of almost anybody else has by by being able to to actually ground it in something where you can actually do it rather than just talk about it so to speak anyway my my two cents worth about that all right i think i have to go unfortunately because my my day job um uh um calls. All right, just one question here. We're, we're back to biology. Why don't trees and plants resonate and break in high winds like tall buildings or towers? Um, I think they do. I mean, I, you know, I have a, live in a place where there are lots of trees on, on where, where I live. And it's really quite common that, you know, when there are very high winds, 
trees will, you know, branches will fall off, trees will break, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think the principal thing that determines whether, whether you'll have catastrophic failure in the case of things like high winds is, is the thing uh, very, is the thing flexible? You know, can it bend? If there's a high wind, if it bends in a direction, that's fine. And then it maybe it bends back when the gust is over or whatever, that's okay. The thing that's really bad is it's very, very strong, but it's very brittle. And as soon as it, 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 it is bent at all, it's like snap, the whole thing breaks. And so with buildings, for example, some building materials uh, like wood, for example, is not brittle, kind of plant, you know, the, the plants had this idea first, so to speak, it, you know, it, it bends. Um, uh, whereas, um, and the same with steel and so on as well, but whereas things that are made from stone, let's say, stone doesn't bend. Stone, if you, you know, if you take a, a stone pillar and you twist it somewhat, you know, you, 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 try and, you try and deform it, it's not going to just bend and then bend back. Instead, if you, if you, uh, if you, if you uh, sort of, if you uh, try and deform it, it will just break. And, and actually, well, another time we can talk about crack formation and why that happens and why some materials are ductile and can just deform and other materials are brittle. And um, as soon as you, you um, uh, sort of uh, uh, displace them, they'll just break. All right, I think I have to wrap up here, but there were um, um, a lot of really good questions here. So I look forward to next week um, being able to go through more of these. Thanks very much, and bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.